welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, I chat with Harry Halpin, the CEO of NIM, which is a privacy infrastructure project. We talk about how his early activism brought him into contact with the privacy sphere and later with the blockchain world, and how he understands the evolving tech privacy landscape. We then catch up about NIM and how this project aims to solve for privacy at a particular place in the blockchain stack. But before we start in, I want to highlight our ZK podcast grant over on Gitcoin. CLR matching should be kicking off by the time this episode airs. So if you're interested in supporting the show, now would be a great time to make a donation. Over on Gitcoin, right now, all donations are matched. Previous Gitcoin donations went towards funding the development of the new ZK website, and future donations will give us a chance to build even more cool stuff for the ZK community. So yeah, please head over there now. I'm adding the link in the show notes and help us grow this thing even more. I also want to thank this week's sponsor, Mina Protocol. Mina is the world's lightest blockchain, powered by participants. It's a layer one protocol working to connect crypto to the real world. This means developers can leverage private, verified, real-world data from any website to build decentralized apps. Mina's decentralized apps, called Snaps, also allow users to access on-chain services without sacrificing personal data privacy. Mina replaces the traditional blockchain with a zero-knowledge proof, which ensures a super-light chain that stays around 22 kilobytes and allows every participant to act as a full node. As an aside, I am both an advisor to the project and a validator, and I can definitely recommend you check it out, especially now as the tools to build snaps are coming online. Mina's mainnet has been live for almost six months, and the ecosystem is growing fast. So do join the community and find out more by visiting minaprotocol.com. So thank you again, Mina Protocol. Now here is my interview with Harry Halpin. So I want to welcome Harry Halpin to the show. He's the CEO of NIM, a privacy infrastructure project, and he used to work on crypto standards in Web2 and at MIT. Welcome to the show. Hi, Anna. Uh, I'm a big fan of the show, and uh, thanks for inviting me on. Cool. I think it was like over a year ago, I had your colleague Claudia Diaz on the show. And in that episode, we actually went pretty deep into NIM. With this episode, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about privacy, actually have that conversation about where your thinking sort of comes from. And then I definitely want to later on in the episode, revisit NIM, hear what's happened since I had you guys on last. And yeah, find out how maybe NIM is solving some of these concerns or issues that we explore. Yeah. So um, from basically my perspective, what NIM is really doing is trying to solve one smaller part of a kind of larger privacy problem, or even you could call it a privacy crisis. So NIM's focus is on the network level of privacy. And I think, you know, Claudia Diaz, our chief scientist, is a world expert on that particular part of the privacy puzzle. And what NIM hopes to do is to enable privacy for essentially other privacy projects, but on that network level. And so I, I think it'd be really good, though, to kind of review and think about what it means to be private in like a more holistic and even social sense. Because, you know, privacy is really different from security insofar as that's not so easily, I think, reducible 
to essentially mathematical concepts or cryptographic concepts. And it's it's a more socially embedded and ultimately holistic concept. Do you feel like with this idea of privacy is like you either have you have it or you don't have it? Or do you feel like there is sort of a spectrum? What you were just describing, like if you need holistic privacy, you need from end to end privacy. Is that what actual privacy is or are there percentages private? I don't know. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a spectrum. You know, there's no it, absolute privacy is very hard to even think about properly. So, for example, could it doesn't mean that it's undetectable. You're even communicating to someone that it's that's unobservable to an outside party when you're communicating. And, you know, some ter- some form of absolute anonymity could be considered one kind of extreme. On the other hand, privacy can also be thought of as a kind of selective disclosure. You know, I may want to reveal to someone that I have a, you know, COVID vaccination or I don't have a COVID vaccination or test result, but I probably don't want that same person, you know, a border guard, for example, uh, necessarily knowing what restaurants I've been going to or my entire flight itinerary or even my, you know, name and address. Maybe they only need the photo to verify that information. So I think, you know, privacy is effectively a spectrum. And when I say holistic privacy, I say even given a particular kind of privacy, that a privacy property that a particular system is attempting to achieve that somehow maps to the expectations of the users, which are often very social expectations. When you talk about achieving those privacy properties, it's important to achieve them on different levels of the system. And so when I talk about holistic privacy, I don't mean you have to be absolutely anonymous, but I do kind of mean something close to end to end insofar as that the property is upheld on all levels of the protocol. Because otherwise, you know, an adversary could easily violate your privacy by kind of looking under the hood, for example. Mm. For example, looking at the network traffic in a blockchain transaction or some other kind of, you know, level in the system. Hmm. Harry, I want to keep going into this, but I was just thinking before we do that, I do want to actually explore your background a little bit more. What led you to working even on this topic? As sort of mentioned in the in the first line, you had been working on crypto standards in Web2. Can you share a little bit about like, yeah, your journey towards this topic? Were you always into privacy? Uh, yeah, I, I've, I've been into privacy for a, a very long time, but I, I always considered it to be honestly up until the Snowden revelations, very secondary to whatever else I happened to be doing at the time. So, uh, as a, a young person, I was engaged in lots of different kinds of, uh, activism or even, uh, revolutionary activity around the anti-globalization movement. Uh, and around climate change. And we had to deal with a lot of very real uh, police oppression. So for example, due to my climate change activism, I actually had a personal undercover cop assigned to me at some point. Whoa. So that obviously, you know, was a kind of eye opener. I'm always interested in computing. And like many young people, I'm, you know, in the kind of late 90s, early 2000s, the main problem that faced the internet was lack of ability to essentially get information out there. So I worked a lot on open publishing systems, including one called uh, Indie Media, 
which was basically to broadcast news of things like police brutality or protests that were otherwise being censored uh, by the mainstream media. And uh, at a certain point, I decided uh, to get a PhD. And I ended up going to Scotland, the University of Edinburgh, where I did a PhD in artificial intelligence, not in cryptography, uh, under a fellow called Andy Clark, who is also a philosopher of artificial intelligence. And that's when I got into machine learning. And after my PhD, during my PhD, I realized that um, AI, this is, you know, this is a long time, it's 2010 and 11, was going to allow increasingly powerful big data processing and inference. And I said, well, look, we need to create systems that are not just allowing big number crunching and surveillance of actors, but we need to create systems which can basically help secure people. And so that's when I, I took a job with Tim Berners-Lee uh, after I graduated, the inventor of the web, to look into standardizing crypto across browsers because I was doing very basic stuff compared to what people are doing now in the blockchain space. We were trying to understand how we could even do like very standard digital signatures in the browser because at the time people were programming crazy stuff in JavaScript and I had all sorts of side channel attacks. Even though I wasn't a, a cryptographic expert, I did you know, take some courses under Ron Rivest and friends at MIT. We didn't really have a clear path to allow people to even create cryptographically enhanced uh, web applications. However, uh, two things happened that pushed me into privacy. Uh, one is that the Snowden revelations happened. And the Snowden revelations made me realize that effectively my worst nightmares about big data and AI were true, that these kinds of surveillance systems could be used by governments and could be used to target activists. And, you know, I don't think activists who are working on things like climate change or even revolutionaries uh, should be targeted. Arab Spring was a a big effect, had a large effect on me. I had, I was visited uh, North Africa, had friends imprisoned, uh, tortured and killed. And so this threat of Automating these systems of oppression really concerned me. And then I got very burnt out on Web 2. I was very skeptical of blockchain technology when it first appeared. I didn't believe, uh, honestly, that it was a giant breakthrough. A cryptographically verifiable log seemed to be just a sort of great concept. But what I misunderstood, and it took me a few years to understand, is that the tech monopolies had essentially created a a, a disaster. And this came home to my job at MIT when they asked me, you know, my organization to work on digital rights management. So this is basically taking key material from users and hiding it from them on purpose in order to make them pay for streaming media services. And so, yeah, so I decided, well, look, this isn't really going anywhere. And also, you know, I started looking very closely at the kind of technology behind mass surveillance. I, and, you know, I felt we needed more and more powerful anonymity tools. I wasn't particularly interested in zero knowledge proofs. I was looking more at things like Tor and Signal. And it occurred to me that we could build a mixnet. So myself and some of my academic friends got together. We decided that, uh, you know, Agalos Kiyas, who helped eventually launch a lot of Cardano, 
George Denisis, who eventually worked at Libra, Claudia Diaz, who you've interviewed and now works with me at NIM. We all got together and we basically said, let's try to build a real world mix then. This could be our contribution to fighting mass surveillance, and not just on the cryptographic level, but on the sort of big data surveillance mm. level. And that's what we did. At the same point, we kind of hit a, I would say, a, a dead end because ultimately research only takes you so far. At some point, you really have to implement. And we were essentially an anti-mass surveillance project uh, looking for deployment, but we didn't have a sustainable economic model. Mm-hmm. And it felt like government research grants, ours was funded by the European Commission, didn't seem like it was really the way forward. And so strangely enough, I, I ran into uh, people from Binance and other places, and they were really into solving these same kinds of problems. And so I was uh, pleasantly surprised. We were had a lot of support from diverse characters, everyone from Adam Back to Vlad Zamfir to Amir Taki. A lot of people were very encouraging. And so we decided to launch a company, and that's how I got here today. And I really do believe that at this point, even though I was very skeptical, and I remember even saying to Vitalik, I, I don't feel like Ethereum can can solve all the world's problems and essentially with essentially what it to me looked like the equivalent of Python scripts and solidity. I do believe that this a tremendous wave of creativity and innovation that we've seen, particularly in the zero knowledge space around uh, zero knowledge proofs, is something that we that can basically save us from both mass surveillance and create new social and economic models. And so that very much excites me. And that's kind of what gets me going every morning. What year were you talking about building this main, this MixNet? Like what year are we thinking? Oh, I mean, MixNets have been uh, in the back of our heads for, for a while. There had been running MixNets. People don't really remember them called MixMinion. And before that, MixMaster uh, that were used by the cypherpunks who were these sort of early uh, cryptographic revolutionaries to uh, to basically escape censorship and to do anonymous email posting. So, for example, there, there's pretty decent evidence that, you know, probably Nakamoto knew about these technologies. Uh, the cypherpunks mailing list was had by Lynn Sassaman, who was actually a PhD student, I think, of Claudia Diaz, who worked on the fir- one of the first real-world Mixnets, Mixmaster, back in 2003. Okay, okay, so these are like some really old technologies. And I, uh, you know, we had friends running email servers for journalists where they really need to disguise their identity from like the mafia or from the police to do. Uh, and, and, and we were, and there was old software called Mixed Minion that actually came out um, before Tor, again, you know, 2003, and that people have been running that software for 10 years without an upgrade. And so we knew about MixNets, but we didn't think really seriously about them because we weren't aware of the threat model. So Snowden was the breakthrough, 2012. And that's when I started talking to George Anissas and other people about trying to make MixNets more practical and more generic. And from that line of conversation started our kind of R&D work in 2014. And now I think NIM kicked off towards the end of 2018. Oh, okay. So it's been going on a very long time. <laughs> I mean, it's nice. what can we say? And, and we, we feel very lucky because it, it, it's just pure historical accident that our work on MixNets and Snowden's 
mass surveillance revelations all occurred right before this huge boom around Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, which has then led to this whole other wave of energy around zero knowledge proofs. And so I, I, we feel very lucky to be alive at this particular juncture. I want to hear you kind of mentioned something just before this idea that like you didn't get it right away or you didn't fully understand the power of a Bitcoin or cryptocurrency like system. What changed? I remember when the, the Bitcoin white paper first came out, um, I have good friends with this uh, fellow called Ben Laurie, who currently works at Google running secure enclave projects, but, you know, was an advisor to WikiLeaks and generally kind of all around cool cypherpunk, inventor of OpenSSL, uh, that little lock in your browser window library. And when when the white paper first came out, uh, I think Ben gave me the worst financial advice I've ever received. I said, well, you think this Bitcoin thing's, you know, for real? And he was like, probably not. It seems the <laughs> mining thing seems sort of wasteful. And we know proof of work doesn't work. Here, I wrote a paper on it a few years ago. Um so I didn't really uh, take it too seriously. It was just there were so many weird things being thrown around the Internet at the time that it just seemed to be yet another weird concept with some cool code. Uh, but then what started me taking it seriously is I, I, I went to some conferences in London and I saw all of this energy from young people. And that while many of us were also very concerned around privacy, uh, we saw not just the work on zero Zcash, but the earlier work on, for example, CoinJoin and stealth addresses. And while it all seemed, you know, a little bit shaky, let's say, it seemed like there was a whole lot of energy put into dealing with the privacy problems. And I think Zcash was one kind of breakthrough insofar as that it was, I think, the first kind of serious academic work or zero coin and then zero cash after that to, to apply zero knowledge proofs uh, to blockchain based systems. So I think. The two criticisms I had, one of which is that these economic incentives uh, would not work, was ameliorated by the fact that indeed it was drawing people to these systems. And the second criticism I had, which is that uh, there was no privacy, even I would say earlier work, the zero cash, like uh, the liquid sidechain, confidential transactions, essentially forms of homomorphic encryption, show that there, way, there were ways to kind of hack privacy on top of Bitcoin and then whole new cryptocurrencies. And I was still honestly a bit skeptical, but the rate of progress of the community uh, convinced me that it was the right place to be. And I think we've seen that play out, particularly in the zero knowledge proof space, but also in other spaces, scalability, mm -hmm. uh, incentives, governance. And yeah, so that's what convinced me. It took it took a number of years, to be honest. Yeah, me me too. I'm I was also late to the party. I've I've known about this. I as a tech, I was a tech founder running around to lots of conferences. There was always a fintech or blockchain track, and I knew about it, but I definitely had not jumped. I didn't jump in until 2017. I was very skeptical of founding companies, to be honest. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. I considered. <laughs> You know, the, the World Wide Web Consortium at MIT, we consider ourselves sort of the knights of the round table trying to work for the common good uh, by putting cryptography in browsers. We didn't. We were very uh, skeptical of uh, startups in, in the general. blockchain space because we had seen so many failed and scammy startups in the Web2 space. And we felt that it was unlikely any of these Bitcoin or blockchain-based start for to even succeed. And then what actually I remember really changed my mind was, was Blockstream, which at that point was, I think it raised a fairly small amount, 20 million. Because I said, wow, that's that's Adam Back. I, I, I know Adam Back. I've read his papers. Uh, 
he's a great guy and he's put together as what looks like a good team and they look like they're serious. I think they might actually be able to, to, to get some real work done. And then I was also excited uh, by the Brave token sale and then uh, the Zcash launch and uh, all of this, all, all of a sudden we started seeing, I think more and more serious teams. And from, from the perspective of NIM and privacy tech, you know, we couldn't put up, put our software into real code because we just didn't have the funds and we couldn't attract the right people. And so we said, well, look, if, if these other teams can do this for, for example, zero knowledge proofs like Electric Coin Company, which I think is now Bootstrap, uh, we can do this too for Mixnets. And that's really what led to NIM. This brings up something kind of interesting, though, this idea of like startups in an activism space. Like, and I, I think you, you pointed this out, like blockchain technology is like it's coming from such an, an activist route. And yet there are companies that were founded around this. So how do you think about that connection point? Startups and activism, like, can they actually coexist? Yeah, I've changed my mind. I used to think they were completely antithetical to each other. I thought that there was uh, startups were essentially get rich quick scams that essentially when I looked at things did not seem very revolutionary. Uber is kind of interesting. I'm, I'm, you know, honestly, I'm glad it exists. It lets me get around easily, but I didn't, I felt it was just ripping off its drivers and I didn't feel like it was even very complicated, you know, and as a researcher, I was very interested in kind of complex, hard problems and I didn't feel there was too much going on under the hood. I remember visiting Moxie and Twitter and, you know, Twitter, honestly, at that point, wasn't very complicated. There wasn't too much going on from like an R&D perspective. And all the action was at Google. And it was clear that action was very asymmetric in order to, to get to solve all these hard problems. You need big data and only a few companies had that data. So I felt it was also pointless to do a startup because your exit was just be bought by a Silicon Valley tech company. And you couldn't even really be successful because they had an asymmetric advantage over you due to their monopoly of big data. However, you know, as an activist, I said we should pursue a more uh, nonprofit route. And we were really into the concept that everyone, you know, should run their own server. People should run their own email servers, even should run their own at this point, Jabber servers uh, should run Linux and uh, use, at this point, people are using mostly OTR and Jabber and PGP. And then what happened, what really changed my mind uh, was actually getting away from like European American circles and going to places like the Middle East where it was clear that no one could use any of these tools. Mm. And that furthermore, the tools that people were relying on, you know, Skype in Syria, uh, Gmail were actually often pretty good if they could escape censorship or there, you know, there was no back doors in them that were uh, targeting these particular activists. And so what became clear to me was that usability had to be a big focus. And all of the tools that we had built in the last, you know, 10, 20 years as kind of cypherpunks, let's say, and activists were unusable. We're not only unusable, but exceedingly unusable. Mm-hmm. And that this lack of usability was, was, was making these tools not accessible to the people that actually needed them. And in order to make usable tools or to make tools that scale, you do need funds and you need talented people. And the problem is that the venture capital up until the advent of blockchain was not interested in privacy. I remember giving a pitch at, I gave you a pitch at Googleplex New York on privacy. We couldn't get a single, any interest 
pre-cryptocurrency, this was in 2016, from any VC, despite winning mm-hmm. some MIT pitch contest. You know, 2017, it gave a similar pitch, if I remember correctly, in California, Silicon Valley, no, very little interest. Mm. And with cryptocurrency, that all changed because we saw a unique historical convergence between capital and cryptography with the goal of making this stuff economically sustainable and usable so that we wouldn't be dependent on government grants, which could be perverted. So, for example, the U.S. government was really wanted to resist censorship in places like Iran and Venezuela, but was not particularly interested in resisting censorship inside the United States and uh, activist technologies. And this, to me, seems to be an ideal combination that we can make startups that serve not just actors, but most of the world is in a situation where they need privacy. Most of the world does not live under anything resembling a fair democratic government. And most fair democratic governance are not actually so in practice. They're slipping more and more towards authoritarianism. Mm. And if we take this uh, as a sort of universal uh, principle, these are also huge markets. And these are mark- these are users. And that's why I think privacy needs to focus. We need to focus, get maybe, I would say even move a little bit away from abstract research and development and move towards figuring out who our real users are, uh, what their threat models all are, and and serving those users. And I think startups, by nature of being lean, by nature of being financially autonomous, ideally, not dependent on outside forces as much as, say, uh, nonprofits or universities, I think are in a better position uh, to to do that kind of work. And that work, I, I do believe, is the only way we can realistically counter uh, mass surveillance. Do you believe that you are still working with a activist mindset or do you do you feel like that's evolved a little bit? And the reason I ask this is when you receive funding, I get the sense there's going to be some compromises, even if there's maybe less compromises than a university or a NGO. Do you still see yourself in the like full on in the activist camp? Well, I, I had a, a personal personal police agent, so I I, I can no I can no longer really go to climate change uh, manifestations. (laughs) I consider this just another way of acting. I don't really I I almost would prefer to say revolutionary than than activist because I think what we're trying to aim for is systematic social change. Um, Mm. That the problems that are are facing us, mass surveillance is a symptom of larger problems of of mass inequality, uh, social instability, um, lack of economic opportunity. Uh, that affects most of the world. That's what that's what leads to things like the Taliban in Afghanistan taking over, uh, or U.S. imperialism in in the Middle East. And we want people to be democratically governed, uh, autonomous, and uh, technologically kind of literate, basically. And that we think that's a, a fundamental shift. And I don't think the compromises that. I mean, there's always compromises, but I don't think the compromises we've had to take in terms of, of venture capital are worse uh, than the compromises that one would have to take at a university or nonprofit. And even I actually think they're on some level healthy because what venture capital is interested in is in growth. When we built early versions of the MixNet, uh, which came out as, as Katzenpost, the Katzenpost code base under the Panoramics Project for the European Commission, you know, there, there was no real desire by the programmers to see growth. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a lot of the researchers were more interested in, in publishing papers than in 
seeing users uh, use the system. But if you talk to like funders like Polychain, who are you know our primary backer right now, their main concern is user growth. They want to see people running nodes. They want to see people actually using the system. And that's what excites them. And that's also, I think, a nice corrective to the, I would say, more insular activist nonprofit world and the academic uh, paper publishing world. Mm-hmm. And I, I hope that, honestly, I hope more more people who are currently in academic nonprofit space try try to do startups. And because you, we can create the best systems of the world, but if no one's using them, I, I do feel like it's it's not pointless. It leaves a foundation for future generations to build possibly use stuff, even if no one uses your particular technique. So we, we support all sorts of R&D. Mm. But that being said, there's no better R&D than R&D that's actually used by someone. And that can, for example, save a life or help reshape our economic system. And and this is, uh, I honestly think the, the startup venture capital model is currently the only way to do that. Years ago, I went, like when I was studying, I, I did a course on like the dynamics of power, I think it was. And I remember writing this very short paper about the reformer versus the revolutionary and the relationship between those two things. So the revolutionary is maybe more the activist, the protester, the one pushing the new ideas. And then there's the reformers who are kind of in the system. And I wonder what your take is on that. Do you feel like there needs to be a strong connection between those two? Or do you feel like it should actually break apart? Um, I, I think that the real breaking apart will happen naturally within any, within any given system in decline if there's no change. And if that change comes more from the inside or outside, uh, it's hard to predict and may not even matter in the long run. So I think our goal is actually to, to prevent breaking apart that harms society and individuals. And the kind of traditional pre-internet divide between protesters in the streets versus, let's say, reformers in the government or in the bank is, is falling apart. And a lot of people who consider themselves maybe more reformist are actually quite revolutionary in what they're doing. But I, I, do, I, I do appreciate seeing this diverse amount of people looking at different ways to change society. And, and again, mm. our job is to provide tools. People from these different groups can use them. And the great thing about privacy technology is that the more kinds of different people that use a system, the larger your kind of real privacy is. And just as like if your only users of Signal were people who were dreadlocked anarchists like Moxie, or if the only people that use Tor uh, were Middle Eastern activists who were under attack, this would all be terrible because you need a, you have to hide in a crowd. But if Tor is being used by governments, if it's being used by activists from the Middle East, if it's being used by Ethereum and Bitcoin transactions, uh, that makes Tor more powerful. Because everyone's transactions can hide everyone else's transactions, and, and privacy becomes a kind of common or public good. And I think we can see that, that kind of model also with NIM, where we're hoping to get as many diverse kinds of user bases together. And then what people do politically with this technology, by design, we don't know. Yeah. Uh, but we, we do, I do bet that it will be for the greater good. And this is where you've mentioned this a couple times, but this idea of usability, this is where this comes in to make it as far as I understand it, like the reason that these tools, the way you you've said it is 
they haven't been used because they're unusable in a way. Like they're just not usable by most people. By making it usable, then at least you offer it as a real choice to a majority of people. Yeah. So I think it's good to look at, for example, uh, PGP as an example of an unusable technology. I don't know if you've ever tried to use yes. it. You have to. <laughs> it's inst- awkward. Yeah, it's awkward at best. You install these weird plugins. There's this key signing ceremony. Uh, there's no authentication, so you don't really know who you're sending your key to. People have bizarre behavior around signatures. People lose their keys. Most cryptographers I know don't use PGP. Uh, and the technology stack, I have a small paper on this, uh, essentially unusable and insecure by design. And why we noticed this more and more is because we started actually, we did a study, it's published in the uh, Security Standardization uh, Research Conference in 2019, where we basically did a uh, interview developers, uh, we interviewed users, and we interviewed users in different countries, uh, not just the United States, and Europe, but also places uh, like Syria and Egypt and China. And what we found was that, you know, users actually had pretty well-defined threat models. Mm. They they understood what threats they were up against often. They weren't really confused. Uh, Where the confusion was, was often the developers who were focusing on things very different than maybe what they wanted their users to be doing. And um, confusion, confusion essentially in the way that they believe the user was, was going to use the tool. And the weirdest thing is that for many years, um, people felt that the very concept of a key in usability studies was the, the big problem. Hmm. There's this famous paper by Alma Witten, who I think is currently at Google, called Why Johnny Can't Use PGP. And the general result of that paper is that no one can ever possibly do key management. But what you discover is that when you essentially connect money to that key, uh, people can be pretty good about key management. <laughs> they'll they're figure not, it out. <laughs> they'll figure it out if yeah. there's, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of dollars attached to it or millions. And I think that's a huge breakthrough. And, and very non-technical people will, will, will write down their seed phrase and try not to lose it. And of course, a lot of people lose it. But I'm sure you've, you know, the, the usage of cryptocurrencies is much higher than the usage of PGP. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, something that privacy technologists take to heart. We, we should, we always have thought that people would never use privacy technologies because privacy technologies do fundamental trade-offs between essentially latency computation, uh, and privacy. It's always more expensive and more difficult to make a privacy-enhanced system than a non-privacy-enhanced system. However, users are increasingly motivated to use these kinds of systems. And so the question is, how do we connect the systems we have to the people that need them? And that's where I think startups come into play. And I think what what you're tapping into here is this idea of what incentivizes the use. So and I, like, I also feel if you look at the privacy space historically, it often presents itself as like, it will protect you from and not it will bring you towards. And the sort of Bitcoin, blockchain, anything cryptocurrency, especially focused, it's incentivizing you towards something. It's like, join this because it will give you benefit that it that takes you from now up. Whereas with privacy, it's often like protect what you have back 
You know, I always got that sense. And I do think the combination of the incentives of like blockchain with privacy tech would definitely push people more forward to want it, not not only to like try to regain what has been lost, but rather go towards something better. Yeah, I, I completely believe that incentives are the way to go. Yeah. I was shocked when we launched NIM how many nodes we got just because they were getting a, a valueless testnet token and how global the phenomenon was. And it is kind of true, you know, under the conditions of late capitalism, the one thing that will unite many people across the world is greed, <laughs> is greed, is desire to get rich. But that being said, it. you know, let's not, it, it is a very, I would say, Puritan standpoint to say this is necessarily bad. Mm. There is a, there's been a huge, tremendous profusion of basic systems administration skills throughout the world. And there's not so many jobs available. So if you want to work at Google and you're from Ghana or Indonesia, it's going to be much harder. You have a lot, you have a lot of things stacked against you. You have language, you have credentials, uh, location, visas. And the great thing about cryptocurrencies is it, it takes away a lot of that by being permissionless. People who just have some technical knowledge can start a node mm -hmm. and then provide services for other people. And that's completely amazing that you can have situations where the same technology, for example, mesh nets, which we're seeing projects like Helium incentivize, I think, is useful for both revolutionaries in situations where their internet starts falling apart and can make people a lot of money in, in countries where they can't otherwise have opportunity. So I think this is a real breakthrough, and this is a huge breakthrough in particular for privacy tech enhancing technologies which has had a very hard time getting adopted. But I do believe that now we're seeing something which we have never seen before, which is, uh, despite their recent mistakes with client-side scanning, if you just look at their advertising, Apple has now advertised themselves as a privacy Privacy, platform. yeah. They've even created their own kind of version of Tor, private internet relay. So Apple, you know, their user base is not... Uh, activists or revolutionaries or people who are concerned about mass surveillance, their, their, their user base is, you know, somewhat bourgeois, richer consumers, but they're, they believe that these people are interested in privacy mm -hmm. and will prefer Apple products over, say, Google products if Apple has better privacy. And so what we're seeing is the mainstreaming of privacy. And this is good for, this is a win for everyone. It's a win for people that want to make money by producing and maintaining privacy enhanced technologies and it's a win for people who are might get killed if the privacy technology doesn't work what is interesting though in what you described and this is a little sort of off the privacy tip but it's the idea of like capitalism and free market as this engine where I want to kind of go back because like your early story of being a anti-globalist climate change activist, like were you at that time pro-capitalism? Because I remember that time, or at least the, those movements as being quite anti-capitalist as well. So has there been like an evolution for you on that front? Yeah, I mean, I'm still anti-capitalist insofar as I don't believe that uh, capitalism can sustain itself indefinitely. Obviously, capitalism is not necessarily preordained to solve the climate crisis, which is of its own creation. You cannot have infinite growth on a finite planet, and maybe space exploration will work out. Maybe it won't. 
I'm quite skeptical because the one thing we know about outer space is that out there, most things are dead. But that being said, capitalism is also a tremendous force for growth. And that, that is inarguable. And so I think that the question is, is if you really want fundamental social change, you have to use any tool that's at your disposal. And idealism uh, will not help you when it's a sort of do or die moment or when you're trying to build real software. And so while I'm skeptical that capitalism is an ideal system, I do think there's lots of parts of capitalism, markets, for example, um, there's lots of elements of community banking, um, lots of elements of Austrian economics even, which are necessary in order to create a new kind of society. And I don't think that uh, kind of authoritarian, centralized uh, societies, even if they consider themselves anti-capitalist or socialist for the future, in fact, I can sort of guarantee they're not. What will probably, I think, be more likely is that we're going to see a fusion between different kinds of more network-based and decentralized uh, forms of governance and sustainability and uh, society as, and society. And this is a shift which, uh, I, I, at this point, I believe is almost inevitable, uh, but there will be a lot of resistance against it from centralized powerful actors of which many are quite deeply embedded in global yeah. capital. And this is the, our job is should be to, to kind of level that playing field and level that playing field through technology. Also a little tangent here, but I I've more and more come to think of like climate change action to actually fix these things. Also through that lens of like, how do you incentivize, like how basically how do you direct all of those brains at this problem? And I think scaring people is one way, but I don't know if it's working very well. And I think using the carrot in, in any way possible to incentivize people towards dealing with that problem and coming up with solutions is better. So yeah, I, I don't know. I used to be much more on the, all, I actually used to be more on the all markets are sketchy and dangerous and money is bad and it's going to bring everything down and I, yeah, I would say there's been an evolution over my lifetime. <laughs> well, I would say collective intelligence is one way to think about it. And a lot of these effects are, are primarily social. So there's a wonderful study by Alex uh, Pentland where they were looking at climate uh, carbon emissions. And they, they said, well, you know, if you basically give people a carbon budget and, and say you have to stick to that, people tend not to stick to it. And they, yeah. and, but what people are very interested in is you, if you give them access to view their neighbor's carbons budgets, oh. then they actually, uh, they kind of are more competitive about being within, you know, basically being less carbon emitting than their neighbor. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's was a pretty astounding uh, uh, finding. And so I think, for me, it, it, it's about using every tool in the toolbox, including market-based tools, in order to basically solve these huge crisis-level, basically species-level problems mm -hmm. uh, that are, are facing the planet. And, and on some level, I consider the fight for privacy and mass surveillance to be a, a rear-guard battle. It's a battle of, of self-defense because, because if you don't have privacy... Uh, then it's going to be very hard to do anything creative. It's a bit like if you ever try to do a trade and you have no privacy, it's pretty easy to get front run. 
if you're a social movement and you want to have an interesting discussion uh, or about changing society, you, if you're under total surveillance, what if that's flagged for extremism? What if you're prevented from having that conversation? I mean, you could, this, this, I think, would lead society to a place of stasis and a downhill uh, stagnation and eventual crisis. And in fact, to be a healthy society, there has to be these private spaces for discussion totally. and growth of the exercise of human freedom and creativity. And so privacy tech enhancing technologies just allow us to build that space in a way that maps to our natural intuitions. When I'm having a conversation with someone in a room, I don't assume someone a thousand kilometers away uh, is listening. Mm -hmm. I assume that's between you and me. There's a whole set of cultural and social and evolutionary assumptions that come into that. But also the internet, we no longer have those assumptions that all, we, any conversation we're having could be monitored and could be weaponized against us. And while it seems paranoid, we are seeing that happen in countries which are falling apart and in countries which want to stifle internal dissent. And, and you need to have internal dissent and creativity uh, in order to for society to regenerate itself. Uh, and if anything, we need more and more of it. And we need a truly immense collection of brains, as you put it, of collective intelligence to deal with these very large problems like climate change. So I personally consider climate change to be larger than what I know or maybe even vaguely qualified to deal with. But uh, I do think that privacy enhancing technologies can play a role in preventing the people that are want to tackle this problem from being... Uh, personally spied and blacklisted and arrested as I was when I didn't have access to these technologies 10 yeah. years ago. A few months ago, you actually gave a talk at an event that we did with the Zero Knowledge Validator focused on Cosmos. And in that, and I'll link to this in the show notes, you had talked in that presentation about a scale of privacy. And I kind of want to I want to dig back into that. Maybe we can explain it on the show. And I also want to understand where NIM and the work that you're doing fits into that. What part, we talked about this earlier in the episode, that it like targets a very specific part of the privacy spectrum or privacy stack, let's say. So yeah, let's, let's first talk on this spectrum. What are the edges of this? Yeah, so I think on some level, you can imagine that privacy uh, is ab means to be absolutely anonymous. So it is undetectable and unobservable that one is even existing, much less communicating. And that's a form of absolute anonymity. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you could imagine total identifiability where every aspect of your very being is recorded and collected as a collection of predicates, a collection of statistical approximations, uh, and that there is no way to communicate without being absolutely known to anyone. And then in between, there's this vast spectrum of what I call privacy, uh, which is a form of selective disclosure where you say, I would like to be known, but in this particular way and for these particular purposes. Mm -hmm. And this is a very important concept. This allows you to sort of reveal different sides of yourself to different people and prevents the abuse of your data by revealing too much uh, to, to those who don't really need to know. And in between that, you can imagine all sorts of 
gradations. For example, to be pseudonymous means that you know you don't need to know my real name, but you have an identifier, which, for example, can reappear in a chat mm-hmm. or could reappear on Twitter. So you can sort of see you can see the behavior of this identity, but not necessarily know who it's attached to. Yes, and the pseudonym can can achieve its own reputation, can have its own personality. You know, Satoshi Nakamoto being, for example, one example of a great pseudonym. But it's not exa- it's being pseudonymous is not being anonymous, and it's simply a, a kind of selective disclosure. And so, I think the the way to think about this was originally theorized by a, a absolutely wonderful privacy enhanced scientist called Andreas Feitzman who basically tried to, in a paper called Anonymity, Unlinkability, Unobservability, Pseudonymity, and Denny Management, produce what he considered a consolidated proposal for terminology. And he essentially bases this on a concept called unlinkability. And I think unlinkability is very key to understanding the multi-sided nature of privacy. So unlinkability, to quote Feitzman, means that within the system, there are, you know, many possible items from the perspective of an outsider, an attacker, these items of interest that the attacker is looking at are no more and no less related after the observation than they are uh, related concerning their a priori knowledge. And that's, that's important because that basically says that I can't link these two items together. I can't link, for example, an email that I sent with who sent it. That's sender unlinkability. Likewise, I might want to send an email, but I might not. I want to be a whistleblower. I want to send an email to all sorts of people, but I don't want to know which journalist received it. I might endanger them. That's another kind of unlinkability. That's receiver unlinkability. And these are different concepts than things like unobservability, where uh, the state of items of interest are indistinguishable from any others of the same type. So this is like, for example, what we do in NIM where we add fake traffic. So it's not clear what your what's your real message and what's your fake message. And then there's even a harder uh, question, which often is addressed by obfuscation technologies, where it's undetectable. So when you use NIM or Tor, it's usually pretty detectable you're using it. Your traffic has a particular signature. And so undetectability means that it's impossible for to even tell if someone's using a given given system at all. So I think this is a good way to think about it, that that for any given system, there's a range of being identified and being private. The way you handle that is selective disclosure. And the way you maintain privacy is, is parts of your activity or your behavior, yourself even. You want to unlink, to de-link from other parts. And with NIM, where does, so you sort of mentioned it's it, like, can you observe NIM action, but not link it? Or can you not see it? So what NIM is trying to do is this comes back to this notion of holistic privacy, where privacy is not reducible to any single layer of abstraction. And so a leak at any layer, for example, at the blockchain layer, the app level, the network layer can eliminate the privacy properties of the system as a whole. And we've seen this mm-hmm. even with Zcash. So, you know, if you just look at the chain, you have a copy of the Zcash chain, the shielded pool looks great. But if you're observing transactions being sent to wallets, as we saw in the, uh, I think the uh, Tromer, Patterson, and I think even Dan Bonet was involved. Uh, side channel attack, they can use these kind of network level 
timing characteristics to de-anonymize, to link, in other words, particular anonymous transactions. And so they're no longer anonymous. With the unshielded accounts, I guess. So that's essentially what a side channel attack is. You can see this uh, with other kinds of systems that have nothing to do with Zcash, like uh, SGX, for example, has many, many different side channel attacks. And, And then what NIM does is NIM says, we don't care or even know what blockchain you're using. We're just going to help you defend the network level transactions. We're going to help you make sure that those side channels, those kinds of attacks that depend on the timing and the volume of packets sent through the Mm -hmm. peer-to-peer broadcast uh, or the communication of your light Zcash wallet with your full node, that those can't be used to de-anonymize you by a powerful attacker. And these attackers aren't all that powerful. There's not that many Zcash full nodes. I think there's like four or 500. And we already know that, you know, way back in 2015, Chainalysis was doing these kinds of attacks on the Bitcoin network. We would assume that they were possible uh, on the Zcash network. And so NIM basically says, we are going to hope, we're not, we're not going to try to replace Zcash, just as we're not going to try to replace Bitcoin or replace Lightning or replace any other blockchain. Uh, but we're going to provide network level uh, privacy for those chains. And we hope that they provide some on-chain privacy as well, because it's it's equally pointless the other way around. If you're using Tor to communicate, right, you may think, oh, I'm our NIM. You may think, oh, I'm hiding my network level transactions. No one may know my IP address. No one may know when I sent that transaction. But if the blockchain is recording in a transparent way, the sender and the receiver, the transactions, of course, you're easily identifiable, no matter what you do on yeah. the network level. Like in that side channel attack you just mentioned, the Zcash one, if like the users had also been using NIM at the same time, would that have prevented it? I believe so. I, I had a, okay. I think I emailed Kenny about this. It's in the paper that, uh, yes, the, the, the timing information, one thing that NIM does, uh, which Tor doesn't do because Tor is built for web browsing and it's not built for cryptocurrency transactions. So Tor has to be kind of high speed while NIM can be a bit slower. Is that NIM changes the order of the packets and changes, therefore, obfuscates the time the packets are sent. So attacks on Zcash or any other blockchain that really rely on timing, we would help ameliorate. But there's other ways to fix it than using NIM. I think that's what the Zcash team did. They basically prevented wallets from behaving in certain ways. So that also for that particular attack, a limited problem. Now we have future research we're doing uh, with the EPFL, EPFL University and Carmela Troncoso, who is mostly well known for doing all the privacy enhanced COVID tracing work, uh, but also happens to work on mixed nets and machine learning is we're trying to understand how much and how bad these kinds of network level side channel attacks are on cryptocurrencies like Zcash. Because the timing and volume not just the IP address, but the timing volume of the packets themselves, we think, is a pretty uh, a pretty powerful signal to de-anonymize, de-anonymize transactions. And there's been excellent mm. work um, by the folks at University of Luxembourg uh, on this issue, but we're going to keep going with it, particularly by seeing, well, can a mixnet help solve these problems? Sounds good. So we are, we're a little bit over time, but one of the things I definitely wanted to get to in this episode was the update on NIM since I last 
had someone from your team on the show. So I think what's so cool is I think we found through this interview, we found like ways in which it can be used, what it's doing, but yeah, where, where's it at as a project actually? Yeah. So where NIM is at is that we are still in what's called the test it mode. And the, uh, the test net mode effectively means that we do not have all the full functionality of the NIM white paper implemented, but we do hope to have all that full functionality implemented. I, I think it's possible by end of the year. The parts that NIM has implemented is we've implemented the Sphinx network packet, which is a packet which makes the kind of, you want to disguise network traffic, you want to make everything sort of the same size. We have mix nodes, which kind of, as I said earlier, mix the packets that obscures timing information. That could be very useful for zero knowledge proof based blockchains. And we also have validators and these decentralized validators maintain the kind of state of the, of the nodes, the mix nodes that are in and out of the system. And it maintains their reputation. And these reputation is currently maintained in a testnet token so that if you fail to mix, if you go offline or you just don't have a high enough bandwidth connection, uh, we kind of don't increase your reputation. While if you do, your reputation increases. Um, and that's where we're at. We're in the testnet. Uh, and we expect to basically over the next few months add more decentralized a measurement of basically quality of service to make sure that the mixed nodes are mixing properly and the validators are, are online. We're working on anonymous credentials because some people that use our network, uh, you know, if you if you were, for example, using our network with Ethereum and you were moving, you know, ETH around, the very movement of ETH would probably de-anonymize you. So we're, we're kind of, mm. we built a, lightweight anonymous credential system, which uh, uses a little bit of zero knowledge proof, so they're not full ZK snarks, um, <laughs> in order to help systems which are kind of naturally transparent to work with us. And I think the real problem we have where we're going to, would like to reach out to folks who are working on zero knowledge proof based blockchains is that, you know, I mean, blockchains in terms of privacy are a very odd paradigm, which is why things like zero knowledge proofs are so important. Because traditionally, in privacy, the government or the chain analysis or the cyber criminal is watching your traffic and making a record of that and using that to identify your transactions. And what happens mm -hmm. in blockchain systems is that we make that record ourselves because it's useful. It's super public for everybody. For everybody. <laughs> and um, so, you know, we feel at NIM quite comfortable with network level privacy. That's what we've been working on for a number of years. That's what we understand. And we'd like to work closer with other teams and other projects to really, to really make sure that we can offer our users something pretty simple where users can do privacy enhanced transactions out the box. And I think that's to go back to usability as, you know, even before mainnet, we would like usable wallets uh, that really, just like you see with Signal today, that give people the ability to do private transactions without jumping through too many hoops or thinking too much about privacy. And they can kind of uh, rest assured that their transaction is private. And we're seeing all this development on very different blockchains, you know, uh, Zcash moving towards Halo 2, uh, maybe moving towards proof of stake. 
Monero's had some pretty brutal attacks, but the community is giant and it has expressed long interest in network privacy through other technologies like I2P. I, we're seeing, I don't know. I mean, there's this private smart contract platforms coming. There's a lot of stuff coming and, and we yeah, would just yeah. like to integrate against it. Uh, and we would like for chains that don't have privacy to add these technologies. For example, uh, Polkadot or uh, see, to be honest, to see better privacy enhanced tech built on top of Bitcoin. Um, mm. And this is, this is, but you know, we can build the most perfect network level privacy system for cryptocurrency ever or for any message-based traffic, but it's pointless unless the, the blockchain itself has usable wallets that have privacy on the chain level. I'm curious, like, just to understand what NIM is right now a little better. Is it a standalone blockchain or is it built on something? Like, is it going to be its own from the ground up validator? It sounds like it's proof of stake. You mentioned validators. Is it is it proof of stake? Yeah. So NIM is complex insofar it has two kinds of components, which are effectively proof of work components. But the okay. kind of work we're doing is not the classic work that everyone's concerned about or mostly knowledgeable about, which is solving. It's not the grinding through computation not, and burning energy. Yeah, we're not grinding through <laughs> okay, hash muscles. What we're doing is we mix packets and mixing packets is work. It takes a lot of computation, not as much as grinding through hash puzzles, but it's, you know, substantial. And so we try to reward people uh, based on successfully accomplishing that work. And that's the, the mixed net itself. And that's what actually provisions the privacy. Now, in terms of a mixed network, we're not a pure peer-to-peer network because uh, there's lots of attacks on peer-to-peer networks. Uh, Anya Petrowska has some good work on this from NIM. Claudia has done Diaz, who was on Zero Knowledge podcast earlier, did the, the truly great work on this uh, up you know 10 years ago, really, showing that in order to really provide strong privacy guarantees, a pure peer-to-peer network uh, is not good, suitable enough. But then the problem is, you have to somehow be able to discover the network and route packets through its topology. This is like, you know, I'm sending packets to one mixed node, it's getting mixed. I send packets to another mixed node, it gets mixed some more. I send packets to a third mixed node, it gets mixed a bit more, then it gets shipped out. And how do I make sure that every packet goes through at least three mixed nodes and that packets aren't being routed to, for example, in circles or to uh, outside the network before they're properly mixed? It's kind of like every packet must be treated equally. In order to do this, historically, the answer is a directory authority. And this is just simply a group of computers you call and they give you a map of the network. And that's what Tor has. We've also decentralized that directory authority. And that directory authority is currently built, and I think, uh, on top of Tendermint. It was built originally on top of Liquid, but we needed the ability to do the reward sharing in a more complex mm. fashion then Liquid allowed, so we moved to the Cosmos and Tendermint ecosystem for that. In particular, we're running uh, Rust Cosmosm for the essentially reward sharing. And that being said, we're not a pure proof of stake system because these validators are all are rewarded not just by being online and having a certain amount of stake. They also, when someone uses the network, they have to create what's called a little anonymous credential for the user. And that little anonymous credential, Tor is a, a centralized version of this that uh, they use with Cloudflare. We have a sort of decentralized version based on a system called Coconut Credentials. Anonymous credentials, like you can consider it like the simplest possible 
a zero knowledge proof scheme. It's just an array of values. And one of those values is yes, I am, I am authorized to use this network. And we basically measure the validator performance by how many credentials uh, they're minting, which also is some cryptographic work. So we're a bit of an odd system, I think, mm. uh, insofar as that we don't want our blockchain to be used for financial transactions. There's enough blockchains out there who want to be used for financial transactions. Uh, you know, I personally feel like there's too many. I'd actually like to see more focused work on, you know, improving Bitcoin, even improving uh, Zcash, improving uh, Monero, improving any of these systems rather than like building a, yet another system. Although there are huge bits of functionality like private smart contracts, which I'd love to see someone do, which are just missing. And so we use our blockchain not as a general purpose blockchain, like many other chains. We use it for a very singular purpose, which is just to tell users how to get on board and find those mixed nodes. Hmm. Um, and so it's uh, essentially a list of IP addresses and keys, uh, which you need to create the Sphinx packets and reputations of those mixed nodes. But is it going to be a zone then? Like it's built using Tendermint. Are you using the Cosmos SDK to build it? We are using parts of the Cosmos SDK. Okay. But we have not yet even thought about uh, being a zone. Um, That's something I'd be very interested in. However, (laughs) to be honest, we kind of want to deal with one problem at a time. (laughs) So, so whenever you, whenever you, we, we kind of, currently just want to get our validators fully permissionless, fully decentralized, and working just to maintain those mixed nodes. I don't know if we really want or need different assets coming in and out of our ecosystem um, at this point. What we, How we would prefer to interact with other ecosystems is we would prefer to do what we want to do, which is provide privacy on a network level. So we were hoping that other mm-hmm. ecosystems can interact with us and they wouldn't use our chain to replace their chain or even transfer assets around different chains. But I think it's kind of the Zcash strategy where Zcash is hoping that user-defined assets from other chains can come in. And I think that'd be awesome. Uh, but that's not what our strategy is. Our strategy is that you would be using Zcash, but you'd also want network level privacy and you would be using Zcash with us as a network level transport layer for your Zcash transactions. Hmm. And there's many different places that could happen. It could happen in the wallet. We can maintain the full nodes with a light wallet. It could happen between the full nodes. We think we could also be uh, useful for other ecosystems in that way. For example, Liquid, who's the main other ecosystem we've been working with, uh, you know, we could help defend. Uh, the, Liquid is used mostly by uh, Bitcoin trading. Uh, in exchanges and for a very large volume. And so it's very sensitive data. So we could help defend the network level traffic of exchanges and traders and all of that as well. I'm assuming I, I did read about the raise that you just did. Is there a NIM token? And what does that do in this case? Yeah. So we have a token right now. Uh, we've actually had three from the test net and we're, we're, we probably will have at some point a final NIM token. And that token does something, again, it's not a general purpose uh, virtual currency, let's say. It's just to basically figure out the reputation of your node in the mm. system, which in mixed nodes is for how much mixing you've done successfully. And we do allow delegated staking. So if people believe you're going to be successful in mixing, let's say you're EFF, people really like you, they will delegate to your node. 
Uh, but then we don't see that as a general purpose financial instrument. Um, and that's very different than, say, Zcash, where what Zcash is trying to be is private money. Mm-hmm. Or what Cosmos was trying to be is like staking on the hub with Adam and like other people running all these different chains that are doing all sorts of different things. And we can, we, on that level, we're in line with the Cosmos vision because we're just doing this kind of very small thing that we want to do well, uh, which is maintain network level privacy. But our token essentially is a reputation token. Got it. Um, and that's, uh, can kind of be considered a, a kind of staking token, although staking might not be the right word because we're not, we're a proof of work system and not a proof of stake system. Mm-hmm. So these are a little bit different. You could also consider a deposit or a bond, but primarily deposits or bonds are supposed to eventually converge on your actual reputation for mixing, for providing privacy. And the real question we have is, uh, uh, something Chris Berneski of VC asked once is how much is a privacy enhanced byte worth? How much is, would, for example, a Zcash user, would they pay a little privacy transaction fee for greater network level privacy? And could that transaction fee then be used to reward mixed nodes, converted over to NIM and given to mixed nodes? And we don't know, but that's why over the next few months, we hope to be working closer with wallets and doing usability uh, usability uh, studies. Now, what we're seeing, to be honest, makes us think that's possible. People pay lots for transactions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm shocked at how much people pay for Ethereum transaction fees, for example. Uh, and those transaction fees, you know, are basically paid to speed up your traffic. Now, with NIM, it's a bit more complicated. So we're going to slow your traffic down a little bit. So maybe we're not particularly good for like high frequency trading. Uh, but at the same point, there are users that would want a bit of privacy and maybe those users would pay a bit more. And we haven't really figured out the economics totally, but we are currently working out some of those that will all be public with by end of the year. And we're submitting them to various wonderful conferences like financial cryptography. Cool. But yeah, is there a value attached to it? Like this is the part I still don't fully get. Like, is it is the NIM token going to be valuable in a trading sense? Like, would people be able to move it somewhere to sell it? Or is it really just this internal utility thing? Well, currently it's an internal uh, utility token. Got it. Um, now, the problem with blockchains is very hard to prevent people from trading things. Okay. Um, and we would be shocked. I mean, we're, we're already seeing, we keep telling people, they're valueless, please don't trade them. And then we see people <laughs> trying to trade trying them already. To. Okay. Um, <laughs> It's just what people are used to in this space. The NIM token, though, should have a value. So the way to think about how NIM works from a technical perspective, this is all new stuff since I think you've talked to Claudia, mm-hmm. is that in the beginning of every round or epoch amount of time, let's say a week, a month, a day, the NIM network runs a kind of bandwidth auction, an auction for privacy-enhanced bandwidth. Where various mixed nodes say, I can provide this much. And the users say, I would like this much. And that then chooses the highest quality mixed nodes to, de- to, to be part of the mix net for that epoch. And if those mixed nodes do their job right, they're rewarded in NIM tokens. And if they don't do that job right, they're kicked off. But you still need those NIM tokens to have some value in a monetary sense to let you kind of get in this game. And that's really important because in an early version of our testnet that was pre-Cosmos, uh, we just gave tokens to anyone that did their job right. But what we found is that there were truly tremendous, sub- we, we, got, we literally got Sybil attacked 
and we went from like a thousand nodes to like twelve thousand nodes in uh, wow. like a few hours. And okay, that's what kind of actually drove us more and more towards using this more complex kind of bonding technique that's enabled by Cosmos. Because essentially, we're saying, well, you know, one really good good way to prevent civil attacks. I mean, it won't work with governments, but it'll work with a lot of ordinary people say, well, in order to jump into the network, you need a thousand or ten thousand uh, Swiss franc uh, worth of NIM tokens. So that naturally makes it harder okay. to do these like ten thousand nodes on AWS kind of civil attacks. Now we have other techniques which we think will also make it harder for even government level adversaries. And I'm going to mention three of them really quickly because they're all really cool. So there's three kinds of technologies that will help us prevent civil attacks uh, that don't require impure money. Uh, one is verifiable locations, which we already have implemented. And this uses a verifiable random function to select a set of nodes that then ping other nodes, record the time of that ping based on the speed of light, and then could use that to, to tell what the actual location of that server node is. And that makes it harder for everyone to kind of cluster civil attacks on a few servers and also could basically make sure the network is decentralized, not just in the number of nodes, but across different geographical locations. Does that matter if they're just using AWS servers from like the three centers, the three main centers in the world? Well, we can not reward those three centers. Okay, okay. So <laughs> we, can, we can say, hey, we want some servers in you know Africa. We want some servers in Tunisia, which has actually a great IXP. We want some servers in Amsterdam. We can, we can disincentivize and incentivize particular locations and servers. And right. uh, verify locations make it hard to fake that. But you know, a powerful adversary can still produce lost servers in different locations. Uh, a second technique we used is a technique which is published by George Denisis, uh, NIM advisor, called Sybil Quorum. And this technique is really cool. It's based on a previous technique called Sybil Infer, which basically uses a social network analysis between who's delegating to who to figure out their Sybil attacks going on. And it's highly effective. And we think this technique could also be used by other blockchains. And then uh, the last technique we use, of course, is the very basic kind of formation of stake pools, uh, or as we call them, mixed pools, where we actually, interestingly enough, took technology that was inspired by the work uh, of Cardano, where we said, you know, civil attacks work to some extent if there's you keeping the same reward no matter how many nodes there are. But we sort of say, well, if you have too big of mixed nodes and you have too many mixed nodes, we're going to lower your rewards. So the bigger you are, necessarily, the more rewards you get. That's very different than Bitcoin. Mm. And But also, the smaller you are, we might not want nodes which are low quality. So we might also lower those rewards. And we try to aim for like kind of a median size. Nodes. Oh, interesting. So it's not like quadratic. It's not like small equals more, but it's like middle, middle equals Ideal. Yeah, and then we fine-tune that middle using that auction mechanism that we described earlier. So I think these three kinds of techniques we use, but they're also kind of general purpose. And while they have nothing to do with zero-knowledge proofs or privacy per se, uh, I do think other blockchains look at these uh, these papers. And they're all online, and our Rust code is is in our GitHub. Uh, People can check out our code and use that as well. So I'm overall really excited, and, and I honestly... The way I feel about NIM uh, is that we are just one 
part of a, a, a smaller puzzle. From a revolutionary perspective, you consider us that we are a finger that is part of a, a large uh, fist. We're just one finger. But we need to work more closely with privacy-enhancing technologies on the blockchain level. And we've seen all this wonderful progress in zero-knowledge proofs. We've seen Plonk, Turbo Plonk, Halo 2. And uh, <laughs> we just want to work more with researchers in that space in order to so we can provide network-level privacy and they can provide blockchain-level privacy. And then the last thing we all really need together is we need privacy-enhanced apps because it's great to have blockchains, it's great to have wallets, but there's a whole space of web browsers, uh, messaging apps, calendars, uh, video conferencing, teleconferencing, mm. where we need not just the network packets, the TCPI, UDP packets, not just the blockchain, but we need the actual app itself to be privacy-preserving. We think that's the next kind of big frontier for all of the people out there. And I, I really can't wait to see people starting building these new kinds of privacy enhanced apps. Very cool. I think they're on their way. I, I feel like there's rumblings about things like this being built, but they do need the, the sort of underlying infrastructure in place in a way to be able to be successful. But we're still in infrastructure mode. We're like the web you know, in the, in the late 90s. And, uh, you know, once I think the infrastructure is in place, we're going to see the big kickoff. So the way we look at ourselves is similar to OpenSSL, right? Where OpenSSL just allowed people to encrypt connections to the web servers. And then after OpenSSL, you got PayPal, eBay, all sorts of wonderful stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's going to happen uh, next uh, with privacy-enhancing technologies. Very cool. Harry, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing this sort of journey through privacy, why it's important. That we got to explore quite a lot through that. I appreciate it. And also where NIM fits into the stack. Okay, thank you so much. And I uh, look forward to uh, talking to you again. It's been a great show. And I, I, keep, I, I do listen to these podcasts regularly. So it's a definitely an cool. honor to be invited. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. Cool. So I want to say thank you to the podcast producer, Andre, the podcast editor, Henrik, and to our listeners. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>